Hey everyone, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. My whole focus is breaking down business opportunities across media, entertainment, and gaming. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in most episodes to share tactical insights about the strategy of their company, an investment thesis they have, or topics like business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. My guest today is Ryan Horrigan, the founder and CEO of RT. RT is a platform for social native games that can be shared and played with others through merely a link, without needing to download an app. Unlike the prior generation of instant games that were limited to development in HTML5, Artie lets developers distribute games made in Unity, the most popular and most robust game engine for creating mobile games. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating point right now. I just, um, in a recent podcast, was focused on Roblox and the Roblox IPO and you know it as a marker of a next stage in social gaming and you know, having a generation where the majority of Americans under 16 are active users of Roblox and are on there not just playing games, but socializing, having birthday parties, attending concerts. We see a similar phenomenon on Fortnite and Minecraft. Games are becoming this next generation of social media. And so I think it's, it's fascinating what you're bringing to the picture as basically a way of, to, in the other direction, bring games more into existing social platforms. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what Artie is doing at a high level that's new to social gaming. Sure, yeah. And I mean, as you said, there already are social games that are social gaming experiences. And kind of oddly enough, a lot of them lately have been on the PC, which you know doesn't seem to speak to the idea of social, where we all think of social media on our phones. But you know, I would think about Among Us, which started on PC, Fall Guys, like these games have strong communities, typically on Discord, and uh, a strong kind of social element. And even you know, battle royales, Fortnite, PUBG, etc., uh, strong social elements that go beyond the core gameplay. Uh, so our interest is really looking at the mobile gaming space, where we've seen you know there's plenty of big success stories, lots of big uh, mobile gaming publishers and studios. Um, there are some challenges with app store fees and the economics and cost of acquiring players, but more so from the consumer standpoint, it seems like uh, the antiquated way of discovering games via app stores from these monolithic curators and Apple and Google doesn't really fit with how consumers consume or just sorry, discover and consume the other content in their lives. So um, if you think about the written word from friend to friend or influencer to audience or articles, photos, videos, and a large por uh, portion of the music we consume, it's all discovered and consumed instantly in the social media layer or in video streaming uh, you know, platforms or even in messaging apps, right? Um, and obviously music is a little bit different because yes, you can consume music in social, but of course you can go to Spotify and, you know, but it's all sort of in one location. Uh, games is kind of the last holdout where you have individual apps on your phone for each individual game. They're siloed, they, they lack community, uh, they lack sort of discovery through the kind of friend, social influencer channel. Um, and I think particularly for young people, Gen Z and millennial, they're just not finding content that way anymore. They're finding it in very few apps uh, where they spend all their time. So what Artie really wants to do is uh, meet the consumer where they are, bring high quality games into these social apps uh, and do so in a way where we can live kind of platform agnostically 
uh, above all these apps without the need for integration or API access. So if you think about sort of Zenga 10 years ago, they needed access into Facebook and then they added connectivity into Facebook and then Apple had connectivity and sort of leverage over both of them, right? Uh, so what we're trying to do allows us to bring higher quality games made in Unity today and potentially other game engines in the future uh, in a link that you can share anywhere and kind of launch natively inside the game. So think of it just like a YouTube link you find on Twitter or you know on a TikTok bio, you can play the video right there in the embedded browser. Yeah, I mean, the mobile gaming sector has become incredibly tough to break through. Um, you know, as the giants in the space have such an advantage, both in terms of paid acquisition, um, but also cross promotion within their games. And you look at you know, the most popular mobile games in the world, that list has relatively little turnover compared to the early days of mobile gaming. Um, it's tough to break through. And there are all these advantages that the large players have when the structure is you have to go through this whole process of you know, discovering on the app store or elsewhere, downloading an app, uh, which you know, people download very, very few apps um, in a given year, even on average. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is uh, we're seeing a return to the open web and this idea of sort of, uh, you know, the free and open Internet again. Um, that's coming from the crypto space with Web3. Uh, it's coming from sort of the antitrust space relative to some of these big tech conglomerates. It's also coming from sort of the privacy sector and the need for encryption and privacy and social products. And then also this sort of need or, or desire for consumers to no longer be the product uh, that is being sold to advertisers and to sort of invert that business model or find new business models. So uh, I think it's a really interesting time in the culture and the zeitgeist and uh, people are kind of pushing back against walled gardens, but also uh, the value is being abstracted out of the OS layer and up the chain, if you will, uh, into the social layer. We've long heard about that in China with WeChat and the idea that, you know, if you're in China, you may not care about what's happening at the OS layer. Everything's happening kind of from WeChat, right? So I think we're starting to see that now in the West, finally. And a lot of that has to do with the tipping point of the creator economy and influencers and brands and IP holders. They all have these massively... Uh, you know, engaged audiences in these like well-established channels. And now you're seeing value built on top of those, whether it's OnlyFans or Substack, et cetera, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and what you're talking about is a, a second wave in uh, instant gaming or games that exist um, you know, yeah. outside of the app store. The first one obviously being with HTML5 games, particularly on Facebook, on some other social platforms. What's your diagnosis of why the instant gaming wave failed to, to truly gain lasting traction. Yeah, and I mean, look, I think they're still trying. I mean, Snap's gaming effort is still relatively new. It's a couple years old at best, and Facebook still has some exciting stuff going on. Um, but I think the challenges there is HTML5 and JavaScript game engines are limited, and you know, you can only produce you know, a certain kind of graphics. So typically those games are 2D, not 3D and, you know, don't have physically based rendering or beautiful lighting. Um, they also sort of lack the ability as programming languages to build like more complex gameplay or larger scope games. So you see most of those games trend towards hyper casual. And a lot of people probably expect that that's because that's what players want. And I actually am not so sure about that. I think that's because that's what's available given the technology of HTML5 and JavaScript. But also all of those games are basically trading the walled gardens of Facebook and Google for the walled, I'm sorry, for the walled gardens of uh, Apple and Google for the walled gardens of Facebook and Snap or Line or WeChat, um, et cetera. So most of those games are not um, uh, 
agnostic or shareable via link, they live inside of Facebook specifically. And because of that, they're tied into the UX UI of Facebook. They might be coming through the web layer, but Apple still views those as part of the Facebook app, right? As a component of the Facebook app. So Apple claims oversight over those games. Um, and in a lot of cases gets to review or you know, approve or disapprove of those games. And then for all of those games, they're fundamentally not allowed to monetize transactionally within app purchases. So that also leads them towards the hyper-casual genre, um, both from the technology standpoint and the limitations there, but also from the restrictions on how they can monetize. So today, really what you see is hyper-casual games that are either entirely free to play or 100% ad-driven. Um, so for Artie, our interest was really, can we unlock higher quality games in the casual, mid-core, or core mobile gaming genre that can actually monetize and be free from sort of Apple and Google's purview, but also not need API access or integration into the social network? So that's, you know, what we've created is some technology to do that. Um, and then we could also get into cloud gaming because that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And we saw some issues uh, on mobile with cloud gaming as well that we identified. Yeah, talk more about that. I mean, cloud gaming... I think has come down from it's the hype it had maybe two years ago um, around the launch of Stadia, um, but there are clear technical barriers uh, that cloud gaming is running into. Yeah, that's right. There's technical barriers and there's also financial barriers when it comes to the operational cost of running a game in the cloud and then sort of reconciling that with the free to play business model of mobile games. So, you know, just as a simple analogy, if you're Google Stadia and you're charging, I think, what, about $15 a month for the service with like the kind of basic games and then $60 or more for each game you want to buy transactionally. Uh, they can deal with the operational cost. And, you know, some estimates, um, and a lot of this is publicly av available data, is uh, cloud games typically cost about 35 cents to a dollar to run across the spectrum of different services. Um, that's per player per hour. So if you're, you know, playing Cyberpunk 2077 on... Uh, Stadia, and you're paying them $15 a month plus $60 for the game, they can kind of hide the loss of, you know, 35 cents to a dollar per player per hour. And that game's only maybe 30 hours of gameplay. It's linear. It's single player. It's not Fortnite. You're not going to be playing it for, you know, eight hours a day indefinitely, right? So I think if you look at the games that they've chosen, uh, cost is an issue. But when you try to think about what would that look like in the mobile gaming business, it's almost impossible. So if you think about, you know, free to play games and how a vast majority of players buy nothing, and then you're leaning into the kind of minnows, whales and sharks who are buying virtual goods, well, you know, 90 plus percent of your, your uh, players are losing you money on an hourly basis, right? Uh, that wouldn't be the case in app-based gaming. So when we look at cloud gaming, it seems like that's an issue. And then latency is the other issue that everyone talks about. So the idea that you're rendering the graphics in the cloud and then streaming video down to players, you're pushing buttons, the data has to go all the way back up and the distance between where the render is happening and where the player is pushing buttons causes latency, right? Um, that latency can be somewhat reconciled um, in the at-home experience on fast broadband internet. Um, and if you look at every major cloud gaming initiative, um, except for Facebook, they're all focused on the at-home experience for PC and console games that sort of require you to have a fast internet connection. And they're, they're games that require you to have a controller, so 4K TV with Chromecast Ultra or on a you know, laptop. Um, what Facebook is trying to do, I think, is a little more challenging in that um, they're not known to have a cloud uh, infrastructure like Google and Amazon, but also they're dealing with the operational cost issue in the free-to-play business model, but also the latency issue. And I think the way in which they're rolling out their cloud gaming initiative is telling you know, that those are issues. They're rolling it out in just a few states, um, which I think is a cost kind of control issue. And uh, they're talking about making a very limited type of game, uh, basically the antithesis of a high Twitch game. 
So I think when it comes to Artie, what we try to do is figure out, is there some middle ground? Is there a way to sort of uh, have our cake and eat it too and mitigate these problems on both the kind of web game side, but also on the cloud gaming side? Yeah. So let's talk in more detail then about what the Artie platform is offering to game developers addressing each of these problems we've talked about on um, you know, the, the kind of HTML5 instant games side. You know, what you're bringing is the ability to build a game in Unity, the most popular and robust mobile game engine um, that has all the you know, kind of features, sophistication of a game that you know, any professional development team might want to build um, and being able to condense it to a size where it's easily shareable on social media. That's right. Yeah. So in Unity today, you could do a WebGL export um, of your game, but typically you'd get a really big and bloated uh, game that would take five plus minutes to load, and then it would be very sluggish in its performance. So essentially no one does that. It doesn't really work. Uh, so what we kind of figure out how to do is hitch our wagons to some new uh, innovative tech uh, that's going to be the future of the Unity game engine. And we were just starting to build in front of that with our own distribution uh, technology uh, so that we realized if, if we leaned into the future of Unity, we could, you know, ourselves or with third parties create uh, more high performing games that are uh, written in ways that the ultimate uh, game's file size is smaller. And then if on our side, we could work on optimizing uh, assets and streamlining assets and animations, working on sort of uh, asset streaming technology, graphics technology, memory management technology, et cetera, that we could deliver Unity games in this hybrid approach. So really what we're doing is we're running the gameplay decision-making and logic on the cloud. The games are all hosted on our cloud. Uh, we use AWS. And uh, the, instead of rendering the final graphics on the cloud and streaming video, we're actually streaming assets to each player. And then we're rendering them on the phone through open web standards like WebAssembly and WebGL. So rather than using WebAssembly and WebGL to run a, a web game in HTML5 or JavaScript, we're actually running a game written in C Sharp that's been made in Unity and is hyper-optimized. Um, so that's essentially what we have. Um, we like to kind of compare it to, if you're talking about cloud gaming, Artie is doing edge gaming. So uh, edge computing would be the analogy. Now it's not literally edge computing, um, but as an idea, we're moving the piece that is you know, latency and cost problematic closest to the end user to solve those problems. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and in terms of Unity, I mean, I'll, I'll let you kind of keep the secret sauce of how you take advantage of it um, for Artie uh, to yourselves. But this is at a high level taking advantage of their data-oriented tech stack, which is something I wrote a bit about um, a year ago around their IPO um, at TechCrunch, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's essentially the future of their game engine. And, it, and it's sort of like after 16 years, they they realized, hey, we need to rebuild Unity from the ground up in a new kind of more future-proof way. And, you know, it reminds me of Mac OS 10 plus years ago when they kind of said, hey, we're going to remake the operating system to be more like Linux, you know, um, and we're going to fundamentally remake it from the ground up. So I think that's what Unity is in the early stages on. Um, so what we realized is there's a clear path to kind of commingle with Unity, and that was the best place to start because they have market share on mobile. Um, but in the future, we might be able to um, build some hooks into other platforms like Unreal or other game engines that are emerging. Yeah, gotcha. Um, talking about the app stores and their role in gaming right now, I mean, we're seeing this with Epic Games' lawsuit against Apple kind of bringing this to the forefront. Um, you know, in the US and EU, some big antitrust reviews uh, for the first time, um, at least first serious time perhaps in the US, um, against uh, the app stores. What do you think the next 
few years look like, whether it's from purely a technology and market standpoint or regulatory action around Apple and Google's ability to maintain that um, you know, 30% fee or 15% for very small developers. Yeah, I think the new uh, decision by Apple, which was just recently adopted by Google, is the first million dollars of revenue will be only taxed at 15%, and then anything in excess of a million will stay at the normal 30%. And the kind of reasoning for that is it helps out the majority of uh, developers making apps. So I think that covers 98% of app developers are making less than a million dollars. But of course, the entire professional mobile gaming industry sits in the top 2%, you know, typically making more than a million dollars a year. Um, so they're all- Which is also the where they money. get most of their money in terms of the, the 30% cut. <laughs> Correct. I believe it's 95%. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it's like 98%. Um, you know, earn less than a uh, million dollars and 2% earn over a million dollars, but account for about 95% of the money that Apple generates, something to that effect. Um, so don't quote, well, you can quote me on it, but I don't know if it's uh, exactly those numbers. <laughs> so I, um, I, I think what's fascinating here is um, kind of addressing these different challenges for mobile game developers now really unlocks a whole new wave of creativity and competition in the market. I mean, you have you know, if you half the fees, um, you know, because already does charge um, a fee that's much lower than uh, the app stores, but, you know, if you cut the fees in half or more for game developers, that's obviously a lot more money that they're bringing home in terms of you know, the sorts of games that are now profitable or the amount of profits they have to reinvest in the same game or expand to new games. Um, you know, I, I think the idea of reducing CAC by making games so easily shareable, right? Anyone can just hop into a game, discover it over social media without that barrier of having to download an app. Seems like another major cost savings for gaming companies, which again, allows more games to be competitive and um, yeah, to reinvest profits in a new game or improving their existing games. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, we're really excited about this idea that we keep talking about internally of moving from uh, games as a service, which I think has been something that's been in vogue and talked about for the last five years or more, uh, to this idea of games as community. And that's really what Artie's trying to do. So, you know, imagine, I guess, well, first I should start out by saying we're less interested in trying to bail out or save the App Store games and port them over to our platform because, you know, we don't necessarily think a match three game for 30 to 50 year old women is going to be the right game for TikTok, right? Um, so, you know, I think we're much more interested in looking ahead rather than looking backwards, even though I think there's a big opportunity from an economic standpoint uh, relative to the app store kind of ecosystem and financial encumbrances. We don't necessarily think all of the app store games will be a, a easy fit to translate over. So for us, what we've been trying to think of is holistically, what is a socially native game in 2021? You know, in particular, who's the demographic that we think is going to be most um, suited for this kind of distribution? We tend to think it's young people, Gen Z and millennials um, that are spending the most of their time in a, a concentration of a very few amount of apps. So I'll say sort of uh, Discord, Twitch, TikTok, uh, Snap, YouTube, and Instagram, maybe to a lesser extent. Um, so those are the kind of platforms that we're really curious about. And, um, you know, let's say we make a particular game that's going to be weighted towards young Gen Z males. Well, we might find that that's a Twitch, YouTube, and, you know, TikTok game, depending on what it is. Um, so we want to build community around those games natively inside of social. So the kind of uh, UA flow would be 
Perhaps that game comes from a huge TikTok star in partnership with a big micro-influencer campaign of streamers. So you could either hear about it from your favorite TikTok star whose game it is, or from one of you know thousands of possible uh, streamers that, that folks might follow. Or you hear about it from a friend who's already playing the game, or perhaps you see an ad and you play the game right from the ad. The idea there is to really focus on organic throughput through human beings rather than advertising to get people playing these games. And once they're playing the game, we want them to, uh, you know, sign up to be a part of the community. So what that means is follow the game on TikTok and maybe log into the game with social login or, you know, give us a phone number or email address, create an account, and then you can be remembered. But the idea is that we want you coming back to play the game on TikTok. So every day when you're, you know, going through your feed, if you follow us or the game, you're going to see, you know, the, the videos of player spotlights that day of, you know, players that achieved awesome things. You're going to learn about uh, exclusive codes for loot boxes. We're going to do NFT drops through that, which we can talk about as well, which you can't do in app stores, um, you know, Easter eggs and just general discourse. So the idea that you would be part of the community of each game natively on TikTok, but also playing the game and one kind of seamless experience so that, you know, there's this kind of holistic uh, feeling you get by playing a socially native game in 2021. It's almost like uh, the idea of bringing Discord and uh, Among Us together on the PC. These are two disparate apps, but they come together to form a community, right? And we just haven't seen anything like that on on mobile social. So sort of what Discord's doing, I think, can happen inside of other social apps. Yeah. I, I'm curious, just in terms of the experience for um, a gamer discovering a game on social media, if you, Ryan, share a link to a game you're playing right now, um, and I click it, am I necessarily joining that game in the same, um, basically the same server where you're already playing? Or am I just now entering the game, but perhaps playing with other people? How do you deal with the matchmaking there? Yeah, so we can uh, let friends play together across platforms. So let's say um, I'm playing a top TikTok, but I've decided to share a video clip out to all my friends across channels, or maybe even I DM a link to my friends. Uh, they can all join from you know, a, a text or from a DM across different channels. So you might be playing on Instagram, someone else is playing on YouTube, I'm playing on TikTok, but we're all playing in the same game together socially. Um, so that's, that's more than possible. You know, these are just really kind of server authoritative mobile games, right? So yeah, you have matchmaking and these are all solved problems. Um, so that doesn't really change. And we think that's really powerful, this idea that you can play with friends. And, you know, our first game is a, a social beer pong game. So it's kind of like a player versus player sports game, like golf clash or tennis clash. But the idea is that, you know, it's for Gen Z and millennials who are stuck at home, not going to high school and college parties. So it skews North American, it skews a little bit more male than female. But the idea is like, what if you could play beer pong against the world and then, you know, unlock virtual goods and climb the ranks? Um, but what if you could also, you know, create a private tournament and send a link out to 20 of your friends from high school and hang out, you know, socially on a Thursday night over audio chat while you play the game? Yeah, your plan is for Artie to be an open platform for game developers to build with, but you're starting from a top-down strategy, building your own games in-house with this first. Why, why that decision? Well, we kind of looked at all of the other games distribution platforms historically, uh, Steam from Valve, all of the major consoles, and even to some extent Epic, which obviously is more known for their game engine, but also has a distribution platform. And we saw that most that have been successful started with their own first party games. They dogfooded with their own tech and they kind of set the tone for what type of games would be on these platforms. Um, so for us, when we built this technology, we didn't believe in this idea that if you build it, they will come. Um, look, all the major mobile gaming publishers are multi-billion dollar players already. They're big ships that are not going to be able to turn 
very easily in the night, if you will. Um, they're they're going to dabble and experiment with us, but I think really where we're excited to to work first and foremost is with um, smaller game studios and teams that are looking for new opportunities and really pairing them with you know, uh, YouTubers or IP holders or music artists or athletes. So, you know, imagine playing, a, a let's see, a Papa Shop basketball game with your favorite NBA star that was made by this awesome studio in Brazil, right? Like that's, that's what's really exciting for us. Um, we certainly hope that the major players, the major publishers will experiment with us, but we don't think they're going to move their entire business over uh, overnight, right? Um, and we also don't really believe that porting their games are going to make sense. We think that really you need to be thinking about making new games that can tap into these pre-established audiences and really uh, leverage organic user acquisition. So for us, it's really about looking forward. And perhaps that might feel like that's a slower approach, like creating a brand new type of game, dog fooding with the first few, opening up to the first few select partners after that. We'll probably have six to 12 and we'll hold their hands later this year. And then we'll eventually by next year have an SDK and developer program and go more hands off. But I think there needs to be an organic process there uh, in order to do it right. Yeah, gotcha. From a business model standpoint, will these games be able to monetize any way they want to in terms of ads, in-game purchases, uh, kind of pay to play upfront? And, yeah. and, and where does Artie make its money? Yeah, so Artie is going to ultimately make its money from third parties by taking a pretty nominal store fee relative to the store fees from today. So you have to account for credit card fees, buybacks, you know, tax and VAT and all that kind of stuff. So a payment processing, uh, you know, partner, which we have. Um, and then you have to also think about cloud costs for delivering these games. It's not free, but it's almost 10 times less expensive or more cost effective than a cloud game. Uh, so, you know, we'll probably be somewhere between 10 and 15%. I would say if we can stay close to 10%, uh, that would be ideal. But to be honest with you, we'll see where this goes. I mean, we'll see if it makes sense to try to become a big distribution platform that's catering to mostly third parties, or if we end up looking more like a Zenga 2.0, where we're more of our own publisher with our own unique distribution than working with other smaller studio teams. I think both are possible. Both are potentially multi-billion dollar businesses. In one scenario, you have to make you know, fewer games, but you have to make and fund them yourself. And then it's more of a hits-driven business, but your take on each game is you know, you know, know, large. Or the other scenario is you're making your 10%, but you've got to have a lot of games on your platform in order to make that 10% equal maybe the 12 games of, of any publisher, right? Yeah. So I think that's kind of how we're thinking about it. We're, we're going to see kind of where that goes and what feels right along the way, but those are the two possible outcomes. Yeah, gotcha. And, and for um, third-party developers on the platform, no restrictions on how they monetize their game? No, I mean, certainly um, if they want to run ads, they can run ads. I think personally at Artie, we're a little less interested in running ads uh, to the extent that they're run in mobile games today. I mean, personally, just and I'm subjective. I really don't like the experience of playing a game and every 30 seconds that an ad is crammed down my throat and I have to watch it. Certainly the optional ads are okay. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, if you can remove the 30% store fees, you can make the paid media convert at a higher rate. You can actually do more with less uh, advertising, right? Um, and certainly uh, in-app purchases are going to continue to be important, but only for the small subset of players that you would qualify as your kind of whales and sharks, right? Um, the, the thing that we're really intrigued by is this idea could you have a free-to-play game where the vast majority of players play for free via links? There's no barrier to entry. Some small minority, you know, uh, buy stuff with fiat currency using the gateways of Apple Pay and Google Wallet as the front end, which we can still do. But then perhaps we create an Uber whale economy that are actually winning and purchasing NFTs that are, uh, you know, uh, scarce. 
And then uh, virtual goods start to go for exponential prices if they're super rare. So, you know, if a skin in a given game is a few dollars or a loot box is a few dollars, what happens when it's a one of one or a one of 20 and that thing starts to go for thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars if the game is really successful, then all of a sudden what I think ends up happening is you have some crypto whales and sharks who are trying to collect and buy those things. But you also have players who are maybe don't have the financial means who are trying to win them in the game. And then all of a sudden, if the market has sort of set a price for a particular NFT in a game uh, and you're a player who's maybe 15 years old, you know, living at home and you think you're a top player, you might, you know, play your uh, your, your ass off, if you will, uh, to win that NFT because then all of a sudden you can sell that in the open market. So playing games becomes a, a earning a living, actually. So we're really interested in that idea. I think that if we can create that kind of uber whale economy, it also incentivizes players, as we were just discussing. But it also opens up more creative possibilities, because I think personally what I've seen happening in the mobile gaming space is uh, game publishers have been over-indexing on sort of data scientizing themselves into a larger uh, subset of, play of paying customers. So, you know, trying to overly optimize to get more people buying virtual goods has, you know, cause this kind of lowest common denominator, one size fits all approach where, you know, games start to feel like clickbait or um, games start to feel like uh, slot machines dressed up as games, right? So I think that the quality of the gaming experience has suffered as the, um, you know, uh, financial conditions have tightened and CAC has become higher and things have become more saturated and competitive. So our hope is on Artie, it actually creates a, you know, a, an explosion of creativity when some of these financial constraints are loosened up. Well, excited to watch how Artie takes off both in terms of its original games and as a platform. Yeah, thanks for the time and uh, definitely look for our first games coming later this year uh, as soon as this summer. Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media podcast. You can join my Monetizing Media newsletter and find other resources like a database of investors who focus on media and entertainment startups at monetizingmedia.com.